Gary Wright got into the computer business in the early 1980s. Computers were different back then. They weren't sleek and fast and seamlessly integrated into every aspect of our lives. They were industrial, physical, constantly breaking, like some old car or the outboard motor on a boat. You needed to get under the hood. So clients would pay three, five, six, seven hundred dollars a month for you to come out and clean the computers. Specifically, Gary would repair the hard drives, which had two main parts, a ceramic head and the disk below it where the data was recorded. If dust got caught between the head and the media, it would crash that ceramic head into this disk and start tearing off the oxide that was on top of these aluminum plates that were spinning at like 3,600 RPMs, and you'd lose all your data. Gary got good at doing this kind of work. He was a capable technician, and he's a really personable guy, a born salesman. Talk with Gary a little bit, and you want to buy something from him. So it wasn't long before Gary decided to start his own company. And pretty soon they had big contracts with the military, with the University of Utah and Salt Lake City, which is where Gary lived. They got into retail and expanded to four locations, selling brand new Apple PCs. If you were in Salt Lake City back then, and you wanted a Macintosh Plus or an Apple IIc, there was a good chance you were going to buy it from Gary. Gary remembers feeling like it was all too good to be true, the way his life was lining up. One morning in February 1987, he's on his way to work on a beautiful blue sky day. Sunroof's open, music's blaring. You can imagine I'm a 20-something-year-old just enjoying life. And um, drive back towards the office and pull into the parking lot. And as I was pulling in, I looked to the right, and I saw this piece of debris sitting there, like a piece of wood. And I'm like, yeah, that's kind of weird. It was sitting near the front tire of a car. Gary parks and walks over to pick it up. As he gets close, he sees there are a few nails sticking out of it, like maybe someone was looking to puncture the tire of that car. I'm walking towards it, and I actually hesitated for a second because the nails are like chrome. And I'm, I'm thinking, that's, that's odd. I've never seen chrome nails before. But I still walked towards it, and as I, I bent down to pick it up, there was like a slight click and a whole bunch of pressure, and then this sound that sounded like a fighter jet going over, so just a massive screech. And the next thing I knew, I was like 22 feet back. 22 feet back. And somehow, he was still standing. I don't remember flying through the air, but I somehow came out of that and landed on my feet. And so I don't don't know how that happened, whether... You know, you you see movies, and maybe it was that exact thing, just going back through the air a few feet off the ground or something and, and landing on my feet. And the best way I can describe that feeling was The Matrix, where he's avoiding bullets and things like that. It was the weirdest feeling ever. I'm looking at the telephone and electrical wires going into the building in a sine wave. And that sine wave is just moving slow, just up and down. And I look around and I'm noticing there's little like snowflake looking things coming down and a piece of red, uh, almost like confetti, some tape of some sort, was spinning down in a circle and kind of just concentric, coming down slow and I'm watching it going, man, you might die. 
Gary can see that his arms are full of shrapnel. There's blood all over his white shirt. But he's having trouble figuring out what's happened to the rest of his body because he can't bend his neck. The reason I couldn't bend my neck down was when the bomb exploded, being inside of wood, the wood turned into like millions of slivers. But they had impelled themselves under my neck, so I was like a porcupine, and I was basically crunching down on those uh, pieces of wood, those slivers that were impelled in my neck. So it was a little weird feeling. I mean, I didn't feel any pain, but at the same time, I was just having trouble um, looking down and around. Molten metal had burned holes deep into his body, severed a nerve in his forearm, cut an artery, but also cauterized that wound, which Gary thinks probably saved his life. There was metal all over his face. His sunglasses were pitted with tiny craters from the blast. He looked like he was wearing welder's goggles. A chunk of wood from the bomb had hit his mouth with so much force, he'd need years of dental work to repair the damage to his teeth. Splinters from the device were everywhere. The, the wood was particularly tough because it's an organic, and you can't see that on an x-ray very well. So, like, years later, I'd be shaving, and I'd hit what I thought was a, a hard whisker, and there'd be a half-inch piece of wood I'd pull out. The injuries Gary Wright sustained that day took a major toll. Multiple surgeries, years of physical therapy. A few things he's living with to this day. But once the violent shock began to wear off, Gary asked himself, who did this to me and why? I literally went back and recreated everything I possibly remember. And I'm a kind of person, I remember every school teacher, I remember every phone number, whatever. But to go back and recreate every relationship I could possibly think of and every person I could have made angry from kindergarten forward. I mean, I had people that I had met on jobs in California years prior that I just felt like, well, that was just slightly off. I mean, could it have been them? A few minutes before Gary bent down to pick up that piece of wood in the parking lot, one of his employees, a woman named Tammy Fluey, looked out the back window of the office and saw a stranger walking through the parking lot, carrying something. She watched him place the thing near the tire of her car, then walk off. The whole thing was odd, but she was busy and figured she'd take care of it later. And then the bomb went off. In the midst of the chaos, she realized that was the guy. And she'd gotten a good look at him. Aviator sunglasses, a hoodie, facial hair. And soon there was that famous forensic sketch. The investigation into the Unabomber was almost a decade old. This was the 12th bomb. And the sketch made from Tammy's eyewitness account would be seen by millions of people. It was easily the biggest break the case had ever had. The FBI, the ATF, the U.S. Postal Service, the local police in Salt Lake City, they weren't going to let this moment pass. Dozens of agents swooped into the area and set up a multi-agency Unibomb task force. There was a makeshift command center and a gymnasium where they chased down all kinds of leads. But nothing led anywhere. Agents looked into it, but any potential suspects got ruled out quickly. The task force kept at it for a few months. But by the late spring... Activity was dropping off. Agents got reassigned. That big, bustling command center got shut down. When they came to the conclusion that they were kind of disbanding the Unabomber task force, it was kind of a bummer in a way, because it's like, ah, oh, well, we're never going to know. This is Project Unibomb, an Apple original podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. I'm Eric Benson. Episode 5, 
The Manhunt. When the Unabomber began his bombings in the late 1970s, he didn't seem to be a big problem. He hadn't killed anyone. His early bombs weren't particularly powerful. And bombings were common back then, but they were almost always directed at property, not people, often perpetrated by radical left-wing groups like the Weather Underground. Kaczynski had put a bomb on an airliner, of course, but no one was calling for a massive federal manhunt. And by treating the Unabomber as something less than a national security priority, he had the space and time to grow into an undeniable threat. In the early years, the person we now call the Unabomber didn't have a nickname. He was a mystery bomber, a ragtag 1970s terrorist with unclear motives who happened not to get caught. By the end, he would be something else entirely. This episode is about that transformation and how, after years of inattention, the FBI finally got serious about taking care of a problem that kept getting worse. It starts eight months after Gary Wright was nearly blown to shreds, when the case ended up in a pile of other cases on the desk of an agent named John Conway. Conway was working out of a small FBI office in San Rafael, California, perched on hills above the north end of San Francisco Bay. And he gets word, come down to San Francisco, the regional FBI headquarters, because you're taking on a new case, the Unabomb investigation. A week later, Conway meets with the guy who'd been saddled with the case before him. He handed me a number of files and showed me in San Francisco where the voluminous files were and said, best of luck to you. (laughs) That was my introduction to Unabomb. And and when you were given that case, what what did you think? Were you you excited to take that on? Were you... Um, yes. Uh, although I was told by a number of, uh, agents that I knew that it was, uh, I was being stuck with a, an old case. Um, I, I always thought rather highly of my abilities as an investigator. Uh, I didn't realize the, the, the size, the breadth of this investigation involved, but I, I liked my chances that I was going to solve it. John, he's kind of a ham. He does voices, tells stories with great gusto. One of the first things I heard about him was that while he was an active-duty FBI agent, he was also an amateur actor in local theater productions. You can understand why he'd want to spend his nights doing the Fantastics and Dial M for Murder, both of which he did, by the way. Because being the Unabomb case agent was soul-sapping. Conway didn't have a task force at his disposal. In fact, there wasn't going to be a single other FBI agent working with him. The case was his, alone. I also had 25 other cases that were assigned to me that I couldn't just let them sit. So it was not the, how would I put it, uh, I never felt as though I was properly supported by the administration in San Francisco. So when Conway isn't tracking Sikh hitmen or going undercover to intercept IRA operatives, He's doing whatever he can think of to breathe life back into the Unabomb case. He's poring over the old case files, looking up old parking tickets and moving violations to see if the same name pops up multiple times near any of the bombings. The next thought I had was getting it into uh, uh, something that people throughout the country would get to see and read. And um, from my recollection, the best book to do that was Reader's Digest. 
So I wound up getting in in the, I want to say it was November of 89, I think. The story was on the cover with the headline, Do You Know This Mad Bomber? In red letters next to the forensic sketch of the Unabomber, created from Tammy Flewey's eyewitness account. And we wound up getting so many thousands of leads. Pretty much every divorced woman turned her former husband in as the Unabomber. And I mean, there were some that were absolutely ridiculous, but we had to, we had to wash every one of them out. Conway doesn't run all the leads himself. He farms them out to dozens of different regional offices around the country. Sometimes the local agents get back to him quickly. We ran it down. No way this guy could be the Unabomber. But a lot of times, Conway just waits and waits and wonders. Is stuff just falling through the cracks? This is how things go for years. Every fall, Conway would get summoned to FBI headquarters in Washington for a big briefing. He'd walk into the same conference room, 60 or 70 people gathered to hear the latest Unibomb updates. Conway would look out from his seat, long table in the middle of the room, supervisors from all the agencies with a stake in his case, the FBI, the ATF, the U.S. Postal Service. Big mucky mucks, uh, people with titles and... Because this being such a big case, they all didn't want something to happen and they weren't part of it. Conway's supervisor would kick things off. Tell everyone... Now I'm sure everybody would like to know what is going on in Unibomb, so we're going to have to rely on the only person that's working. Is John Conway in the room someplace? And I'd say, I'm right here. So I'd get up and I would fill them in on whatever's been going on for the last year or the last month. Then Conway would make his big pitch. I need more manpower. And everybody, absolutely, absolutely, you name it, you can, whatever. Listen, when I go back, we'll take, you know, it was smoke, basically smoke. And once the meeting was over, no, everybody went to lunch and forget about it. Conway's taking care of it. (laughs) I mean, my image is like, the movie where you're alone at the desk is like the one light bulb on, you got That's some... That's it. That's, I mean, I can somewhat understand if an arrest is imminent, the Bureau would put all the manpower they could gather on that case, trying to bring it to fruition quickly, safely, etc. And the feeling in the Bureau was that if they, if they weren't able to uh, solve this matter, uh, John Conway not by himself is not going to be able to solve it. So, I mean, why are we going to waste manpower giving it to him? That was the way it was explained to me. The years after Gary Wright picked up that bomb would prove to be the quietest, most mysterious era in the two-decade-long Unabomber case. The Unabomber simply disappeared. There had been lulls before. No bombs in 1983 and 84. No bombings in 1986. But this was different. After the forensic sketch is published, he just stops. No bombs in 1988 or 89 or 90 or 91. At FBI headquarters, they start saying, maybe he's done. Maybe he got arrested for something else and he's in prison. Maybe he blew himself up accidentally. Maybe... He just decided to stop bombing. There was no way for them to know what Ted Kaczynski was actually doing in those years. This was when he applied to go back to college and when he sought help from therapists. This was when he contemplated, as he put it, getting civilized again. 
But all the FBI knew was there were no more bombs, and so the investigation no longer felt urgent. In 1992, Conway gets word from the higher-ups in D.C. It's over. Time to shut down Unabomb. I said, no. It's a major case. Man has killed people. He's still out there, and I'm not going to close it. But Conway could only single-handedly keep the case open for so long. The longer the Unabomber stayed away, the more likely it was the case was going to get mothballed. And then, June 22nd, 1993. I was, uh, had a day off. I was uh, with my son over at Hamilton Air Force Base, which is closed. We were at one of the baseball times playing baseball. It was a Tuesday afternoon. And the pager went off. And don't ask me why I was dumb enough to wear my pager on a day off, but I was. And I called in, and they advised me that a bomb had gone off in Tiburon, which is right down the road here in in Marin County. Um, And from what the first reports from the policemen there, it sounded like it could be Unabomb. The attack had some telltale markings. The bomb arrived in the mail. It was contained inside a wooden box. And without going home to change or whatever, here I am in my tank top and shorts, and I raced down to Tiburon, and sure in hell, it was Unabomb. Alive and well. The victim was a prominent scientist, Dr. Charles Epstein, who had pioneered the field of medical genetics and done groundbreaking research on Down syndrome. Epstein survived, but the Unabomber wasn't done. Two days later, a computer scientist at Yale University named David Galerter received his own mysterious package. When he opened it, the bomb ripped through his body, nearly severing his right hand and partially blinding him. Galerter hobbled down five flights of stairs on his own to get help. That same day, a letter arrived at the New York Times. The Unabomber was taking credit. He called himself F.C., the same initials that had been stamped on a metal plate inside many of the bombs. Suddenly, the investigation was a national priority, and Conway was about to get what he'd been fighting for for all those years. Janet Reno uh, decided that um, this called for a serious task force, that little Johnny Conway uh, was not able to handle this by himself, thank God. Nineteen ninety three was not the FBI's finest year. By the time of the Charles Epstein bombing, there had already been the disastrous siege of David Koresh and his Branch Davidian followers in Waco, Texas, and the continued fallout from an FBI sniper killing a young mother in a standoff in Ruby Ridge, Idaho, a year earlier. And a new terrorist threat was making itself known. This is a CBS News special report. Fires are burning in both towers of the World Trade Center. The whole building shook. And then the lights went out. The explosion blasted a gaping hole through the ceiling of the second sub-basement in Tower Number 1. On February 26, 1993, four months before the return of the Unabomber, a massive bomb exploded in the parking lot of Tower 1 of the World Trade Center. The plan was masterminded by a Pakistani terrorist named Ramzi Youssef. This is a little bit of a side road, but there's a detail from the Unabomber saga that I've never stopped being amazed by. For 20 years or so, Yousef and Ted Kaczynski shared a cell block in ADX Florence, a supermax security prison in Colorado. Their block is referred to as Bomber's Row. Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber, he spent a couple years there too. The three of them, Kaczynski, Yousef, and McVeigh, 
reportedly used to meet up during rec time to talk politics. Back in 1993, Ramzi Youssef's aims were clear. He and his conspirators had been hoping to do what later happened on 9-11, topple both buildings and kill thousands of civilians. The 1993 bomb didn't do that, but it was powerful and lethal. Six people died. Thousands poured out of the building, gasping for air. There was smoke, and then the lights went out. The walls just blew in. Everything went blank after that. Just a tremendous amount of structural damage. None of us knew it at that point in time. America didn't know it. The FBI didn't actually fully realize it. But um, before we heard from the Unabomber again, we were already involved in what would become the war on terror with international terrorist organizations like al-Qaeda. This is Terry Turchi a longtime FBI agent who rose up the ranks to become deputy assistant director, overseeing the counterterrorism division. We didn't know if Unabom was part of a uh, operation involving al-Qaeda as well. We didn't know for sure if there was one person or many people from the right or from the left working uh, to, to bomb targets in America. Uh, there, were, there were theories of both. We didn't know if we had a lone uh, terrorist bomber, a lone serial bomber. And so they wanted Unabomb solved. Unabomb had to be explored, it had to be finished up, and we had to know what was behind it. The new Unabomb task force took over a big chunk of the FBI's San Francisco office. John Conway was still part of the team, but now there was a high-ranking agent running the show and an A-team of 45 federal agents working full-time on the case. One of them was a longtime veteran named Max Knoll, you might remember him from earlier in the series. Max was laser-focused on the fact that most of the Unabomber's communications, including the manifesto, were written on a Smith Corona typewriter with pica font and 2.54-centimeter spacing. Max was in his 50s, doing what FBI agents call posting and coasting, mentoring younger agents, getting home in time for dinner, not putting his neck on the line every day. And Max was a hard evidence guy. He liked solid facts, concrete leads you could run down. And he knew Unabom was a morass. There was nothing solid about it. So when Mad Max gets the call from the new task force boss, he tells him, keep me out of this Unabom thing. I'm ready for retirement. You know, I don't have the desire to become involved in a, in a huge multi-agency task force. Uh, please reconsider. And he said, nope. So whether he likes it or not, Max gets to work, trying to chase down whatever semblance of evidence the task force had, or thought it had. I could go on for hours listing all the projects we had, uh, the mechanics and the aviation, uh, the uh, uh, explosives residue and aluminum. Forensic experts assumed the Unabomber must be melting the aluminum he was using in his bombs in a home kiln. So we had a project going on identifying everyone uh, in the United States in the last 10 years that we had been uh, purchasing uh, uh, home kilns, very labor-intensive project. Then there were all the calls from the toll-free tip line. All of those 53,000 calls had to be investigated. That's another labor-intensive thing. They were chasing leads from the Unabomber's letter to the Times, leads from the old eyewitness sighting, leads related to the bombing locations and the victims. 
The amount of information you guys were going through just to me feels uh, staggering. And well, it feels said, so easy I, to lose, lose track of all of it. Uh, exactly. I said before, this is an information management case as much as it is an investigation. We had pretty much all the information we needed. And we knew that as soon as we got the correct suspect, we would recognize it immediately. For the first time in the investigation, they begin consolidating all their files into a computer database. Up until this point, those files existed mostly as hard copies, stashed away in whatever regional FBI office had investigated a bombing or lead. Then they, and I'm talking out of, because I'm not a computer guy, but they had to upload, download, or whatever load they do, the investigative documents into a complete text retrieval program called Xi Index. Now, that all sounds good, but the problem is, is that guys like me that were assigned to this didn't have the slightest idea how to use a computer. So we all had to be trained. I didn't even know how to turn the computer on. This is when Terry Turchi enters the scene. He's working in Palo Alto, not San Francisco, and he doesn't work in criminal investigations. He's a counterintelligence agent in Silicon Valley, trying to smoke out foreign spies and keep America's technological secrets from falling into the wrong hands. Palo Alto for the FBI was a key place to be working counterintelligence because just about every enemy of the United States and even all of our friends were interested in all of that technology and in those technology companies. And the hope was that we could make them aware of all of the kinds of indicators that they might see if their employees were being targeted by hostile intelligence services. In April of 1994, Terry gets installed as the new head of the Unabomb task force, and he brings on a new leadership team. It's some criminal guys, Max is sticking around, but also a bunch of new people from counterintelligence, and they're all about trying to get inside the head of the enemy. Well, we need a behavioral uh, opinion that is more up-to-date and, and current. Uh, we, we can't keep getting along with being told that, uh, yes, this is a serial bomber, and so that means they're probably a white male, and they live in the basement, probably with their mother. I mean, you know, well, what is that? How is that going to help us solve Unibom? The profile is the profile. It doesn't change. The Unibomber is the same guy he was when he started bombing in 1978. So the profile's not going to change. Kathy Puckett had worked with Terry in counterintelligence. I said, well, how does that make any sense if you un uncover new information or, or invest, you know, you get other facts and other information that you're going to put together? And they were just very rigid about that. Kathy insisting on a new approach? It didn't make her super popular with the old guard when she joined the task force. Criminal guys aren't really crazy about the idea of counterintelligence agents getting involved with criminal cases because uh, we tend to go over and over and over. They don't know what we do. And um, we're used to long, fruitless chases under difficult circumstances with very, very formidable opponents. And we're used to not having quick answers. We work through things repeatedly, reanalyze, go over and over things. I was not viewed by the rest of the agents in the office as, as a very good agent. 
probably a shitty agent, frankly, um, because they didn't know what I was doing. And I didn't feel that it was my job to tell them or to try to make them like me. As a result, I knew it would be futile anyway. So Terry and Kathy decide basically, screw those guys. We're just going to go ahead and do things our way, which meant we're going to go back over everything. One of the things that we noted is uh, that there was a language, um, academic aspect of Unibom that we had never touched. This was before Ted Kaczynski had sent his manifesto. In fact, this was back when the FBI still had very little writing to go on at all. Still, some investigators had seized upon some odd details that seemed to suggest the Unabomber was laying out breadcrumbs, or maybe false leads. For instance, many of the devices were mailed using $1 stamps depicting the playwright Eugene O'Neill. There was the sense that he might be playing word games with the concept of wood. The bombs were made of wood. One was sent to United Airlines President Percy Wood. All the stuff that had caused trouble for those D&D guys in Chicago in Episode 3. There were pseudonyms, too. Names that sounded like outlandish characters from a Thomas Pynchon novel. One bomb arrived with a letter signed by one Enoch W. Fisher. Another was signed by Ralph C. Kloppenberg. In that letter, Kloppenberg refers to the niche academic discipline known as the history of science. Why the pseudonyms? Why the letters? And what in the hell is the history of science? And uh, we then find that the history of science is like this very restricted academic um, uh, arena that only a number of universities and colleges had programs in at that time. What were some of the main ones? UC Berkeley, University of Michigan, Harvard. Through the summer and fall of 1994, Terry and his team kept combing over the evidence, squinting at the data, and wondering if the Unabomber was in there somewhere. It had been a year and a half since the Unabomber last struck. But then on December 10th, in the upscale suburb of North Caldwell, New Jersey, his next bomb arrived. A New Jersey advertising executive opened a piece of mail in his home this weekend, and it exploded, killing him. The FBI now believes that advertising executive Thomas Mosser was killed by a terrorist bomber who has planted a series of bombs nationwide. Why would this bomber target Thomas Mosser to kill in such a dramatic way, a person who both colleagues and neighbors describe as a wonderful family man? December 10th is when Moser got his device at home and opened it, and it was just, just savage. The Moser device was particularly devastating. It was detonated on a Saturday afternoon when Moser's wife and two young daughters were at home. If one of the girls hadn't darted into another room to stage a pretend tea party a few seconds before Moser opened the package, the bomb might very well have killed her and her mother, Susan. Susan Moser was the first person to respond to the scene. She found her husband bleeding profusely, his stomach slashed open, his face blackened and disfigured. Kathy Puckett specialized in sensitive interviews, so she got the call to go visit the Moser family a few weeks after the attack. I mean, when, when I got there to interview the, you know, Susan Moser, his widow, there were still, it was still a crime scene. The kitchen was still a crime scene, and there were green paneling nails still embedded in the cast iron pots that were hanging up over the sink. So she'd been living in that crime scene since we were there in, uh, I think we were there early January. Wow. 
The Thomas Mosier bomb turned a long-running investigation into an episode of 24. It was more powerful than the ones received by Charles Epstein and David Galerter. It was the kind of bomb that really could bring down an airplane. The task force had limitless resources, the backing of the highest levels of the federal government, and their efforts had come to nothing. They hadn't spooked the Unabomber. They had no clue who he was or where he was. Max Knoll remembers the feeling of desperation. Thomas Mosier had just been killed. We're working virtually 16 and more hours a day with our noses to the grindstone, and we're working nights and weekends and so forth. Four months later, on April 24th, 1995, the Unabomber strikes again and kills again. This time it's Gilbert Murray, the president of California's logging industry trade organization. Murray was a well-liked, soft-spoken guy with a wife and two teenage sons, and he hadn't even been the intended recipient of the bomb. The Unabomber had addressed the package to the guy who had the job before him, so it was a screw-up. But the Unabomber said he didn't care. The day of the Murray bombing, another letter from the Unabomber arrives at the offices of the New York Times, taunting the FBI and spelling out the rough outlines of his anti-technology ambitions. On June 27th, another letter arrives, this time at the offices of the San Francisco Chronicle, saying a bomb will be placed on an airplane flying out of LAX. It sends the country into a frenzied panic. That night, he says it's a hoax, and his 35,000-word manifesto arrives at the offices of the New York Times. The next morning, Don Graham, the publisher of the Washington Post, gets a call from FBI headquarters. The same manifesto is sitting in your mailroom. And with it, a letter explaining... If one of you doesn't publish this essay in its entirety, I'm going to stop joking around and kill more people. The Post published it in September 1995, and magazines and newspapers ran think pieces, and tips flooded into the FBI, and Max ran down leads, and Kathy kept thinking about what all those words meant, and Terry tried to keep the whole thing running while assuring his bosses in Washington that the investigation was on track. And September turned to October, and October to November, in November to December. You can only keep that pace up for a while until you start losing people to fatigue, to, you know, lack of conviction that this is ever going to work, to defeatism, to... I mean, this is when people start dropping. You know, we, we've done everything we can. We've done everything we can. We've run every single lead out. The manifesto was by far the best clue in the history of the case. It was probably one of the best clues in the history of criminal cases. 35,000 words written by the killer that was then made available to millions of people? How could someone not recognize that? Thousands of people came forward. The Unabomber sounded like an old student, an ex-husband, a brother. But none of those tips panned out. Four months went by. And still, nothing. That was where things stood on a Thursday night in early February 1996, when Kathy Puckett got a call from another agent on the case, a guy who also came from counterintelligence, Joel Moss. Joel called me one day, and it was about 7 at night. He said, what are you doing? And I said, um, <laughs> what else am I doing? And he said, I need you to look at something. We went down the street to the coffee shop that we went to a lot, and 
he pushed this manila envelope across the table to me. I said, what's this? And he said, just take a look at it. And I, I took it out of the, it was typewritten, copies of typewritten pages, and started reading the first page. And by the third paragraph, the hair in the back of my neck stood up. I said, where'd you get this? And he said, never mind, just tell me what you think. And I said, this is the guy. He said, I know. <laughs> what are we going to do now? That's next time on Project Unibomb. Project Unibomb is an Apple original podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. It's produced by our senior producer, Jonathan Menhivar, and me, I'm Eric Benson. Our producers are Elliot Adler and Melissa Slaughter. Editing by Joel Lovell and Maddie Sprung-Kaiser. Our fact checker is Sarah Ivry. The episode was mixed by Davy Sumner, Jason Richards, Elliot Adler, and Jonathan Menhivar. Studio recording by Brian Standifer at the Texas Monthly Studio. Our artwork is by Guillaume Casasus. Music by Mark Orton and John Hancock. Additional music by Eric Phillips and Jeff Baxter. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Des Rochers. Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.